Please turn with me in your Bibles to uh, Matthew 26, verses 36 through 46. Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to the disciples, Sit here while I go and pray over there. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, My soul is exceedingly, exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch with me. He went a little farther and fell on his face and prayed, saying, O my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Then he came to the disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, What, could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, a second time, he went away and prayed, saying, O my Father, if this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink it, your will be done. And he came and found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away again and prayed the third time, saying the same words. Then he came to his disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. When I was studying for this sermon, I came upon a quote I don't, that I really liked. Um, the author's named B.M. Launderville. I have no idea who that is, so I apologize if he's some sort of fierce heretic or something like that. But he, uh, he said this about suffering. He, when writing about Christians and suffering, he compared us to a vine that climbs its way up an oak tree the oak tree being the Lord, and and he, he says this, the vine clings to the oak during the fiercest of storms. Although the violence of nature might seem to threaten to uproot the oak, the twining tendrils of the vine still cling to it. If the vine is on the side opposite of the wind, the great oak is its protection. But if the vine is on the side exposed to the tempest, the winds only press the vine in closer to the trunk. In some of the storms of life, God intervenes and shelters us, while in others, he allows us to be exposed so that we will be pressed more closely into him. I like that. We know as Christians, we live in a fallen world. This place is broken. It doesn't work the way we wish it would. The way it would if it were perfect. The way we know it will one day. We know that the Lord Jesus promised us, in this life you will receive what? Trials, troubles, suffering. We know our living hope is someday God will remove us from any trial or suffering. Then he's going to remove trial and suffering from existence. But in the meantime, while we wait for that day, we're a lot like that frail little vine that can't do anything but cling to the oak. Hold on for dear life. That's a good metaphor But what's it look like in real life for a real person to cling to the Lord 
during a trial, during suffering? How do we suffer well? How do we face trials correctly? Is there a blueprint somewhere that shows us how to do that? Well, it would be a stretch to call today's passage a blueprint for us. But today's passage comes pretty close. Today, as Jesus goes to Gethsemane, if nothing else, we see very clearly a picture of Jesus preparing for a trial of immense magnitude. We see him beginning to suffer intensely. And we know because it's Jesus, we're looking at someone who is suffering not just well, but perfectly. Someone, who's, someone who is facing a trial exactly the way it is supposed to be done. So I think we can look at a passage like this and pull some lessons out for us of how to prepare for the, our next trial, or if we are in one, how to suffer well. On the other hand, I think by looking at the three disciples Jesus takes with him, we can see how not to face trials, how, how not to prepare for trials or face suffering well. So that's what we're going to see today, sort of a how to and how not to suffer and prepare to suffer. To set the context where we're at, we're probably either late Thursday night or maybe after midnight, very early Friday morning. This is the last day of Jesus' life. He has celebrated the Lord's table. Uh, he's instituted what we celebrate at communion. They sang a hymn. He has led the disciples east out of town, out of Jerusalem, across the Kidron Valley. They've climbed the Mount of Olives. On the way up there, he told his disciples about their trial that's coming. You will all run away from me tonight. Then he told Peter, Peter, you're going to deny you've ever even met me. You're going to do that three times before morning. And where we pick up today in verse 36, Jesus goes to a place on the Mount of Olives called Gethsemane. It's usually called the Garden of Gethsemane, but really it's an orchard, what we would call it. It's a, it's a grove of olive trees. The word Gethsemane means oil press. So most likely in that day, there was, a, there was an olive oil press right there on site so that they could harvest the olives and press the oil, the most precious commodity they contain right there. And that's a fitting name for where Jesus is at. He is sort of in the oil press. At this, Jesus knows what's coming. He's predicted his death. He's predicted it by crucifixion. He is staring down the barrel of the cross, and it is pressing on his soul. And he's going to show us in that emotional agony how to prepare for trials and suffer well. And I do want to get eventually, sort of the main course this morning, is some lessons for us about how we should prepare for trials and suffer well. But before we get there, I want to make sure I'm clear this passage is not about us. Don't read this passage and think that this is about me. It's not. It's about our Lord and what He went through. He just becomes the example for us. And, and I want to make sure that you are reminded 
that the suffering, the trial that Jesus faced is unlike anything anyone else has ever suffered. It's a suffering, it's a trial, it's completely unique to Jesus. A little bit of that, or part of that, was was what Jesus would face physically over the next 18 hours or so. Jesus knew he was going to die. He knew he was going to die via crucifixion, which was awful, which was horrific. He knew, as any uh, Roman subject knew, crucifixion meant incredible physical suffering, not just having the spikes driven in your arms and legs and, and being hung by those nails in your flesh until you died. But if that was going to happen to you, you would do about anything to keep that from happening. So the Romans were really good at beating a victim beyond any ability to resist before the crucifixion. Jesus knew that was coming. He knew it would be public He would be naked, he would be humiliated, and he would be just tortured in an unimaginable way or a way that's unimaginable to us. But that's not the worst part that Jesus was facing. As hard as that is for us to understand, that's not what was crushing him. That's not what makes this unique to Jesus. Because let's face it, there have been thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of people who have been tortured for their faith. There are lots and lots of people who have died for their faith and even done it bravely. There are people who were in like Russian gulags for decades and decades. It's it's not the physical part of what Jesus went through that pressed on him the hardest, which is a mouthful when you think about what he went through physically. We, we're not saved because a perfect man got beat up really bad a long time ago. That's not what saves us. What was pressing on Jesus was the spiritual weight. What his disciples would come to understand and write about later. In 1 Peter 2, which is on the, on the screen, Peter said that Jesus bore our sins in his body on the tree. And by the way, notice why he did that? So that we might stop sinning and live for righteousness. Paul, a later disciple, would say that, that God made Jesus, the one who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf. He became our sin. I don't think we can probably fathom the phys- what the physical torture would have been like, but I know we can't fathom what it would be like to be the Holy One of God, to be God in the flesh, and yet have every sin that's ever been sinned put in our body. But I want to take one little stab at illustrating this. It's going to fall so far short, but maybe will get us pointed in the right direction. Is there something scary that's scary to you that is just like against your nature, like completely um, adverse to your nature? Like, how do you feel about snakes or spiders or needles? 
right? Just something abhorrent and disgusting to you, or like Ohio State fans. Just something just disgusting and wretched to most of you. Snakes is a good example, because I think we can, even if, even if you're not really scared of snakes, I don't care if you're the croc hunter, God rest his soul. If you just happen upon a snake, it gives you a quick dose of the heebie-jeebies, right? Well, if, and if you really are adverse to snakes, I can probably give you the willies. Just, just, just imagine, like right now, there is just one snake slithering up the back of your shirt right now. Okay, I saw some shivers, right? Now, imagine this. Imagine you are in a tank that's, let's say, 10,000 times the size of this auditorium, sanctuary, whatever we call it. And you are sort of drowning halfway down that giant tank. Well, you're not drowning in water. You are suspended and surrounded and drowning in a, in a huge tank of every snake that has ever existed. The poisonous ones, the worst ones, they're and every one of them is going to touch you. They're going to crawl in and out of you. All right, that's something that's really disgusting and averse. Now that I've given you nightmares and my work here is almost done. What Jesus was facing as, as averse to your nature as that giant tank of spiders or snakes or needles or whatever it is, as, as awful and horrific as that might seem to your spirit, your nature. That is nothing compared to the Holy One of God and how He would have felt about sin. And we're told on the cross, He literally he bore all of our sins on in His body until He became our sin. Earlier in His life, what did Jesus say He was one with? I and who are one. I and the Father are one. On the cross, He became one with all of the sins that have ever been sinned. That's what pressed on the Lord. And because He's God, and because He knows, His justice knows that sin must be punished, He knew when He became sin, that the wrath of God must be satisfied. In this passage, Jesus talked about a cup a couple of times. When Jason read that, did you catch that? Father, let this cup pass from me. Do you know what that cup was? In the Old Testament, a cup is often what God, is, is a metaphor for what God has planned for someone. And the wrath of God is often compared to a cup. The, wrath, the judgment God has in store for people is compared to wine in a cup. Psalm 75 is a good example of that, where we read, but God is the judge. And here's a picture of judgment. He puts down one, he exalts another. That's judgment. And for the one that is put down, that is condemned in judgment, the psalmist writes this, for a cup is in the hand of the Lord, and the wine foams. It's well mixed, and he pours out of this. 
Surely all the wicked of the earth must drain and drink down its dregs. So down to the last drop. God's judgment in the Old Testament is pictured as the cup of God's wrath. But it's a big cup. It's like every time anyone has ever sinned, a little more of the wine of God's wrath was poured into some giant vat. A few more ounces, a few more cups, a few more quarts. Until God had all of this wrath stored up. And Jesus knew when he became sin, the cup that was prepared to to punish that sin was the punishment of every sin that had ever been sin. And as that would be poured out on him at the cross for the first time in eternity past, God the Father would be separated from God the Son. The Son would be rejected by his daddy. And that's, that's what Jesus was, was looking at. And that's what makes this unique to him, something you or I could never know. But we can learn about how to face trials, how to prepare for trials, and how to suffer well by looking at Jesus. This passage teaches us about human suffering and how to do it well. A couple of things this passage teaches us just about suffering in general or trials in general. From looking at this passage, we can tell two things are true about trials and about suffering. First, trials, difficulties, suffering is not the same thing as punishment from God. How do we know that? Yes, Jesus' suffering was about punishment, but it was not punishment he deserved, right? Jesus, we can all agree, Jesus was not being punished for something he had done wrong. Isn't that true? The next time you suffer, the next time I suffer, though we should take some stock, because sometimes we do suffer because we've made really bad decisions and that make, that those hold consequences. That happens. Sometimes I suffer when I do dumb stuff, sinful stuff, bad stuff. But just because I'm facing a trial or suffering does not mean I am getting it from God. Another thing just about suffering in general, this passage teaches us, reminds us, Trials and suffering are not distributed equally. Jesus suffered way more than anybody ever, but that's not the only way we see this. Jesus had 12 disciples. At this point, he's got 11 left because Judas has gone fetching the mob, right? But if you notice, as Jason read the passage, Jesus picked three to come with him in this suffering. That necessarily means there were eight that didn't have to come. That's the way suffering and trials works in this world. That's part of what makes trials and suffering hurt so badly. Because when you are going through something painful, you can always look around and see all these people that what? That don't have to go through what you are going through. 
That's part of what makes it hurt so bad. It's not equal. It's not fair. This can be helpful to remember. It can be helpful to remember that God is not punishing me when I am suffering because that attitude will keep me from God when I need to be like that vine that is pushed in toward the one who will protect me. And second, it's good to remember, was God, was God in control when Jesus was in Gethsemane? When I look at all the people who don't have to suffer the way I'm suffering, next seems so unfair, it can feel like the world has spun out of God's control and it has not. That's the way this works. Some people suffer this much, some people suffer this much, and God is in control the entire time. Now, under the lessons I think we can learn from this passage. If you're going to face trials well, if you're going to suffer well, first thing I think we should do that we learn from this passage is we should take a few other people with us when we're suffering. Or, when, or, or as we prepare for trials. When Jesus was staring down the barrel of the cross, he didn't act tough. He didn't act like he could handle it. He didn't act like he didn't need anyone. He picked out three of his closest friends. And he said, boys, I am really hurting. Enough, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Would you please come with me? If the one who could walk on water and heal diseases and raise people from the dead thought it would feel better if I had some friends with me during this. Do you think it's okay for you and I to ask for help when we are going through something? I think so. Now, we also learn that uh, we don't necessarily take everyone into our grief. How many did Jesus pick? Three. How many did he leave outside the circle? Eight. When we're suffering, when we're hurting, maybe when we're facing, when we're up against something, sometimes the circle shrinks a bit. You know what I mean? We don't necessarily invite and ask everyone to help us hold our grief, our, our sorrow, our pain. Everybody's not built for that. Everybody's not good at that. And I don't think we should hold everybody accountable for their failure to hold our grief. That's, really, that's a really easy thing to do because when you are suffering, when I am suffering, guess what the only thing we can think about is? Our suffering, our trial, how bad we're hurting. And it's really easy to kind of be mad at people who aren't in that with us. But Jesus didn't take everybody with him into his suffering. He asked a few people, help me hold this. Now, they were terrible at it. They failed him. But Jesus didn't dislike the other eight disciples. He just didn't ask them to help him there. Trials, suffering shouldn't be done alone. But that doesn't mean they always have to be done publicly either. I think we learn to take a few with us. And the last thing here, there is something about corporate prayer that's helpful. Jesus 
had no illusions that these three knuckleheads could keep his suffering from happening. But he wanted them there. And they failed him, but there's something about having some friends praying with you and for you and there that just helps. And I think we can also learn, even though we don't know when our next trial is coming, we probably need a few people to be preparing with. This isn't the actual trial we see today. Like Jesus is sweating drops of blood and the trial hasn't even started yet. He's preparing. We need to have a few people that we prepare for trials with. And I just mean that we're in the word together with, that we're praying with. All right. First thing we can learn about trials, about suffering. Have some people you prepare with. Take people with you into your suffering. Uh, Don't hold everyone accountable that doesn't help you hold your grief and your sorrow. Next one. When you are facing something that hurts, here's something we learn in this passage. Pray for relief. It's okay. It's okay. It's okay to, pre- to pray that God, this trial doesn't even come. Lord's Prayer, God said, God taught us to pray. Lead me not into temptation. Deliver me from. You pray that? Don't let that stuff. I don't want that, God. It's okay to pray that the pain stops. Going a little further, verse 39, Jesus threw himself with his face down, with his face to the ground, and he prayed, my father, if possible, let this cup pass from me. I I don't want this pain. Being a Christian does not mean that somehow I have to desire suffering. You know that? Being a Christian does not mean that if I'm mature enough, it really won't even hurt. It wouldn't be suffering if it didn't hurt. It'd be called something else. Suffering well doesn't mean somehow it doesn't hurt. And we're not sadists. We don't get some sort of sick pleasure from the suffering. And so we ask for ourselves and for others that the suffering go away. If if we read back through the Gospels, Didn't Jesus spend a lot of his time relieving the suffering of other people? Yeah. Did he heal everybody? Nope. But he relieved a lot of suffering. His message was not, well, Mr. Leper, I hope you're learning what you're supposed to learn. Good luck with that. Quit your whining. Never. Compassion. Relief from suffering is a a Christian ethic. But notice, even though Jesus does not want to suffer in the way he sees is coming, what he wants more is not what he wants, but what the Father wants. Not what I will, but you will. Which takes us to our next lesson from the same verse. If you're going to prepare for trials well, if you're going to suffer trials well, we have to always remember God reserves the right to say no. Jesus very clearly prays and says, I don't want that suffering, right? 
the father really clearly says no. At no fault of Jesus. It's not that Jesus didn't ask correctly. It's not that Jesus didn't believe hard enough. It's not that Jesus didn't send in enough money to the guy on TV. God just said no. I don't think we'll ever be able to understand on this side of heaven why God says no when God says no. We have to remember he has the right to, and he's right when he does somehow. I do believe this. On the other side, when we are with the Lord, if we can look back over this time in our life of the times where we prayed for relief or deliverance from suffering and God said no, if we can see why God made the decision God made, we will thank him for saying no. Even though down here, I don't, I don't think we can get that at all. I don't either. But this is why Jesus adds, not, not what I will, but what you will. Now I want to skip down to verse 42. We're going to skip the disciples falling asleep. We'll get them, we'll pick them up next. Next thing I think we learn in verse 42 comes from Jesus' second session of prayer. And it's this, if I'm going to prepare for trials well, if I'm going to suffer well, my resolve must be to glorify God. If I want to go through trials and suffering well, my resolve, my desire, my goal must be to glorify God well, even in the suffering. That's my purpose. I was made to glorify Jesus Christ. You were made to glorify Jesus Christ, and that purpose doesn't stop when we're suffering. Here's how we see this in Jesus. Something has changed inside of Jesus between his first hour of prayer and his second session of prayer. His first prayer went this way. My father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Second prayer is this. My father, if this cup cannot be taken away unless I drink it, your will must be done. This is a very familiar passage to most of us. Don't let your familiarity with this gloss over the fact that there's something that I think is supposed to be confusing in here. When Jesus prayed in the first prayer, let this cup pass from me, what was he asking for? Remember what the cup is? The cup is the cup full of God's wrath. That cup passing from him meant he wouldn't drink the cup, right? It wouldn't be poured out on him. That's what he asked. Seems to be the cup passing would mean necessarily that Jesus doesn't drink it, right? But in the second prayer, it says, if that cup cannot be taken away unless I drink it. So in the first prayer, the cup passing from Jesus meant he wouldn't drink it. In the second prayer, the cup passing away means he will drink it. Do you see the confusion, the seeming contradiction there? Here's the only way I can make sense of these two prayers. Jesus being God, he knows the Father is just. You know what justice being served means? It means the guilty get punished. Do you get angry when you hear of someone doing something terrible and yet they get away with it? They don't get punished. Does that make you feel angry? Okay, God is just. And he has promised to punish every sin. So here's Jesus. He's praying, 
Father, I I know you have that cup of your wrath and anger stored up. Let it pass away. I don't want to drink it. Set it to the side. Some point during that hour, Jesus realizes, I'm asking my Father to do something that doesn't fit with his nature. I'm asking the God of justice and righteousness to not be righteous and just. So Jesus changes. Jesus has, he changes and he realizes that cup is going to be poured out somewhere. And it, that necessarily means then it won't be poured out somewhere else. And so the second prayer is this. My father, if that cup cannot be taken away from whom? If that, cup can't, if that cup of your wrath can't be taken away from my friends, from those who love me, if, that, if, if they can't be spared unless you pour it out on me, if it's either me or them, I don't want to, but I am going to open wide. I'm going to ask you to pour that down my throat. That's the second prayer. If it's got to be poured out somewhere, and if the only way it's going to miss them is if it hits me, then your will be done. If what will glorify you, Father, is for them to be saved by me taking their punishment, then that's what I want. And if you read down in verse, I think, 44, the, his third session of prayer is the same thing. This is preparation for trials. I don't want the pain that might be coming, but if it comes, I want to glorify you. Even if it means I will suffer like crazy. So much so, if you look at the last verse in this passage, verse 46, he goes back, finds the boys asleep again. At the very end, he says, The mob is here. They've got their clubs. They've got their torches. Judas is leading them. And then Jesus says, every man for themselves. Run away, boys. Abandon ship. Is that what he says? No, do you know what he says? Let's go. Go where? Toward the cross. Jesus, during those second and third, that session of prayer, Jesus sets his jaw toward difficult obedience. So much so, hey, I have prayed that this not be what I suffered, but God has said no, and if that's what he has for me, I'm going to do this well in a way that glorifies him. And as we read the rest of this passage, he will go, one might say, like a lamb to slaughter without so much as opening his mouth. He will not resist He will not defend himself. Let's go. Now, if we back up and look at the disciples, we see how to fail a trial. You want to know how to make it very likely that you or I, that we we fail in our next trial, fail to prepare? You know why we'll fail, fail to prepare? Because we don't think we need to prepare. You know the story. Jesus says, hey, you guys come with, stay awake. Would you pray with me? 
They can't. They fall asleep. Do they know that a trial's coming? Should they know that a trial's coming? What did Jesus just tell these guys? You're going to run away. You're going to deny you ever met me. What do they all say? I would never do that. That wouldn't happen. To, come on. It's me, Lord. I'm your guy. Pride. Self-confidence. Look what Jesus says. You couldn't stay awake with me for one hour. Stay awake. Jesus says, I'm not the only one on trial, guys. Pray that you will not fall into temptation. Here's the problem. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. We're going to see this really clearly next week. But the disciples' problem is they're stuck in their flesh. They love Jesus, but they live in their flesh. Here's what I mean. I think I can hang in there. I think I'm strong enough. I think I'm self-disciplined enough. I would never do that. So that lulls them literally to sleep in this case, to sleep and thinking they don't have to be prepared. They're not aware of their weakness. They're not being led by their strong spirit. They're just doing the best they can and they will try not to sin no matter what happens. That's, that's the flesh. As Christians, inside every single one of us, if you're a believer in what Jesus did for you at the cross, you have something immensely powerful. It's the Holy Spirit of God. Paul said you are already seated with Christ in the heavenlies. God has not given you a spirit of fear, but a spirit of power. That's in there. The spirit is powerful. But my flesh wants to avoid discomfort at all costs. My flesh wants to feel good no matter what. My flesh is weak. It's like, it's like we're shown the reason that these guys fail is they fail to prepare for the trial. And here's the preparation. I've got to constantly, continuously be making sure that my spirit is fed and I live with my flesh in submission to that strong spirit. Because it's really easy to get stuck. I'm just living life and trying not to sin. That's the flesh. That's the law. Living by the spirit is every single day Lead me not into temptation. Deliver me from evil. Lord, I'm going to be obedient. I don't know what you have for me today. I hope it's not bad. I really don't want to suffer, but I'm going to be obedient. Show me where you want me to go. Show me who you want to talk to. Show me how you want me to do this job. Show me how you want me to lead this family. Parent my kids. Walk with me. Lead me. I need you, Lord. I ever... I'm submitting my flesh to the Lord consistently, daily. Otherwise... When I just live trying to do my best and the trial comes, my best is never good enough. It's not. And I mean that personally. My best in my flesh and my power is never good enough up against the temptation of an extremely powerful enemy. So here's what happens. I'm 
Been doing pretty good. Been going to church. Trying really hard not to sin. And now, I hate to even give examples because I don't know where your next trial will be, but maybe it's at work. And all of a sudden, something's going to happen at work and you're not going to get what you want. If you're not prepared to live by the Spirit in that, your flesh will be more than happy to take control. And I don't know if your flesh is one that will just try to bully people into giving you what you want, and then you'll figure out later why to convince yourself you weren't wrong. Or if your flesh will make you just run and flee. But I do know your flesh will take over. And it's not that it's weak in that there's no courage in it or there's no, it's just weak in the things of God because your flesh will want what it wants. Maybe your next trial will be in a relationship, whether it's in your family, on your marriage, with a friend. Same thing your flesh will be confronted with something it doesn't want. If I am not prepared to let the Spirit of God lead me, my flesh will take over and it will not be strong enough. If we put all this stuff together, here's what this passage, I think, teaches us. First, if we want to prepare for our next trial, we need to be doing that with others. Jesus needed other people when he was going to prepare for his trial. How much more you and me? Find some people, meet some people, get together, open the word, share your struggles, share the weaknesses of your flesh. Next, pray together for relief. Pray that I might not be led into that temptation, that God would deliver me from that evil. I don't want that. Or here's what I'm going through. Pray together that it would stop. All the while, third, understanding God's right to say no to our prayers for relief. And then together, resolve to glorify God, even if he is going to ordain that we suffer. And the last one takes us right back to the top. And always be preparing. Always be preparing. I do not know when your trial or when my trial will come next. I do know it's coming. And I know if we are not prepared, our flesh will take over and we will fail. We learned last week, the Lord will take us back every single time. But failures hurt, man. They hurt us. They hurt others. We, we miss out on the ability to be different from the world in a powerful way. We miss out on that opportunity for someone to say, man, I cannot believe you behaved like that in that situation. I, I can't believe you allowed yourself to like lose. Like you lost that, that deal, that sale, that relationship. You lost that, uh, man, I would have never done that. Let me tell you about somebody who taught me to suffer well. His name is Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father God, uh, first, thank you so much, Lord Jesus, for drinking down the wrath of God that it would not be poured out 
from us. The cup of wrath will pass from us because it was poured out on you. Thank you for not only doing that, but then becoming the example of how to prepare for trials, for suffering. God, help us be preparers. Help us daily to be giving over the, our wills, the wills of our flesh to the power of the Holy Spirit that is within us so that you would be glorified whatever may come to us. God, I do not want to suffer. I do not want the trial. And I don't want it for my people here. But I do want to be obedient. So I pray you would lead us not into temptation. You would deliver us from evil. But because your kingdom is what we're supposed to be about, help your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. We love you, Lord. Be glorified lead us through the next difficult season you have for us. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.